trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. This is a gathering place for people who are serious about owning their own worldview. In other words, I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm not here to insist you must toe this ideological line or you are not welcome. I'm going to do my best to present information that I believe is credible, nonpartisan, and is detached from a personal agenda to force you into something or another that you may or may not want. And then you get to make up your mind what you want to do with that information. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center, and also GovernYourIncome.com. I want to start with something kind of humorous. I want to thank my friend Chicago Ron for sending this my way. This is uh, the Babylon Bee's Top 20 Predictions for 2022. Some of these are pretty good. Let's see. This is just a quick look at a definitive list of things that will happen in 2022. Number one is, uh, well, this was on January 1st. U.S. Postal Service will deliver your Christmas package. Okay, there's probably a few of those. How about this? January 21st, men break every record ever held by women. Followed uh, the next uh, day by Harvard Gender Studies professor discovers five new pronouns. Followed on January 25th by Obama releasing another memoir. Let's see, February 1st, the World Health Organization runs out of Greek letters for variants and starts naming them after the Muppets. Uh, Oh, March 10th, Obama releases yet another memoir. March 25th, meat is outlawed and replaced with delicious bugs instead. April 1st, AOC is red-pilled after reading an economics book. How about... April 19th, man dressed as woman hailed his first woman not to complain about being cold. All right, one final one. August 15th, the only child to be named Brandon for the entire year is born. I love these guys only because they make me laugh at a time when otherwise I really am having a hard time feeling encouraged. And if there was ever a time where personal courage was a necessity, that would be now. Paul Rosenberg has a marvelous essay on how to build confidence and courage, as well as a handy way to distinguish between these two qualities. He says confidence and courage are not magic. They are built just as other aspects of human character are built. And if we want them, and he says, I think we should, we'll have to develop in the old-fashioned way with work. But before we continue, he says, let's define confidence and courage. What These are such great definitions here. Confidence is an opinion that you hold about yourself. You either believe that you are able to do a thing or you don't. You either believe that you have innate ability or you don't. Courage is your ability to make decisions and hold to them in the face of fear. Courage is about what you do, not about what you feel. See, that right there was some wonderful clarity. But he says the first complication for building confidence and courage is that counterfeit methods abound. There are many people and groups that will tempt you with shortcuts, and the game is this. They give you something that looks and feels like confidence or courage, but only if you are inside their group. 
It's a safety in numbers trick. A terror of personal responsibility trick. Now he says, please remember that groups are not better than individuals. They're worse. So don't fall for a counterfeit real confidence and courage. Uh, Real confidence and courage, he says, are formed inside of you, not inside of a group. And that fast, cheap courage of joining the group is fake. Truth be told, he says, it's a kind of stealth enslavement, and it's fragile. But now let's get to the building, to the specifics, rather, of building courage and confidence. First of all, building courage. Paul Rosenberg says our subject in this installment is courage in general, especially as it applies to moral courage. We'll deal with physical courage in our next installment, but he says, first, believe me that our world is in jeopardy, not for lack of physical courage, but for lack of moral courage. This is the kind that really matters. Now, with that said, we can begin with one of John Wayne's very best lines, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Courage is your ability to act in the face of legitimate fears. And you have to build this ability just like you build your muscles. That means you start at a low level of courage and build up to a high level. Courage grows little by little and only with effort. So if courage is built, then something else is true. To act cowardly does not make you a permanent coward. You can always do better next time, as long as you try again next time. So imagine a weightlifter, perhaps a great champion. He can lift hundreds of pounds, but when he started, he failed many times to lift fractions of what he lifts now. He only became a champion after he decided not to quit, even when he failed a lot and things were very hard. And it's the same with courage. If you face a scary situation and act as a coward, that isn't the end of it for you. You can come back and do better and come back the time after that and still do better. Then after a long time, people will watch you and wonder how you can have so much courage in the face of adversity. So building courage is difficult, but you can do it. And if you fail at first, Paul Rosenberg says, get up and do it again. Here are some of the usual steps. Make up your mind to do better next time. Imagine how you'll face things differently. Force yourself to do things you don't feel like doing. Learn to overcome your instincts with your will and stand up for what's right, even against a crowd. Now he reminds us this has been done by millions of other people, and that means that you can too, even if it requires hard, consistent evidence, or effort rather. Now, building confidence. Confidence, as we said earlier, is an opinion you hold about yourself. So the first question facing you becomes, are you judging yourself properly? Are you accurate in what you think you can or cannot do? Paul Rosenberg says what many people think about first is that they might overestimate their abilities. Now, that, however, is not a serious problem. If you think you can do more than you actually can, reality will clarify that error and quickly. Once you try to do it, you'll find out. Underestimating is the more common error, and it has two major parts. The first is that you presume you can't, so you never try. And sadly, this is very common. It's been a gigantic loss to the human species. This passage from G.K. Chesterton in The Defendant makes the point well. There runs a strange law through the length of human history, that men are continually tending to undervalue their environment, to undervalue their happiness, to undervalue themselves. The great sin of mankind, the sin typified by the fall of Adam, is the tendency, not towards pride, but towards this weird and horrible humility. End quote. Now, Rosenberg says the second part involves hiding our abilities. 
Some of us have decided not to acknowledge our abilities because we feared that people would dislike us for having them. This is a common error, but he says it's a sneaky one. It often occurs without our really considering what's happening. We feel fear. Then we decide that acknowledging our abilities is dangerous, and what makes it worse is that this usually begins at an early age. Hiding your ability might have made sense for you at one time. There are, after all, bad situations and bad people. Protecting yourself has value. But he says we must always acknowledge our abilities to ourselves, even if we hide them from the world. So if hearing about your ability will anger someone, don't tell them. But don't let it go further than that. Don't close your own eyes. He says we're all born with certain basic abilities, of course. But practical applied ability is built with practice. And this includes all types of abilities, from physical skills to making moral judgments. So if you want ability, act. And as you act, notice your actions and results. Decide what worked better and worse, and then improve your actions. As you continue learning, he says, decide which types of abilities suit you and your life the best. Choose the best paths and spend time and effort on them. Find your gaps, decide which abilities will be more or less important to you in the future, and then act accordingly. Then keep acting, and keep improving, and soon enough you will become a confident person and a courageous person. I'm looking forward to his next installment on on courage. But I love that distinction. Courage is what you do, not just what you feel. And I think particularly when it comes to moral courage, this is where we are in the midst of a proving ground where a lot of people are learning things about themselves, um, some which may be surprising and, and, uh, you know, uh, encouraging. People may find that they have courage that they didn't know they had. A lot of people are finding, too, though, that, uh, well, when push comes to shove, I knuckle under pretty quick. And please don't feel shame over that. We've all been there. We've all done that at times. We've, we've compromised because, well, it was just easier than making waves. But unfortunately, the kind of compromises that are being demanded of us right now are the kind that are not easily come back from. So I'll have a link to this in the, art, in the uh, show notes, this article by Paul Rosenberg on building courage and confidence. I think we're going to need both of them in far greater supplies than what we have right now. Because we're living in some tricky times, my friend. We'll be back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick mention here to lifesavingfood.com. This is where you can pick up food storage and preparedness items and rest a little easier at night. Look, it's not going to solve all the problems in the world, but there is something to be said about the confidence that comes from knowing that if something happens unexpectedly, I'm just going to give you just kind of a weird random example. It's the dead of winter. The power goes out. How am I going to stay warm? And well-fed. Well, if you have food storage, if you have alternative means of heating your home, 
These are things you've already sussed out. These are things that you have have taken the time to have something in place where you can fall back on it. And you're not just, you know, well, guess I better go show up to the Red Cross shelter because that's my only option. Now, look, it's not to live in fear. Okay, it's not about, let's see, what's the next possible disaster? You can't prepare for every single eventuality. But there's a lot that you can do to mitigate unforeseen crises that will come up from time to time, just simply by virtue of the fact that we live in an imperfect world. Let LifesavingFood.com help you get that peace of mind from knowing, I can handle this. I've got a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I would be greatly honored if you would click on it and do business with them. So how can you tell when someone is trying to brainwash you? I mean, I guess it depends on the person, right? For some people, it may be a very easy thing to spot. For others, maybe not so much. Ken McManigal has a couple of uh, very useful takes on this subject. And he starts with the question, can you tell when someone's trying to brainwash you? Well, he says, one way to know is to watch for revealing words. So when someone says, our government or your government, that's a subtle form of brainwashing. He says, it's a lie, but it's one that most people won't catch. That also applies to things like our president or other politicians. Another red flag is when they speak of leaders when talking about rulers or politicians. Ken McManigal says, that's another sneaky lie. A newer trick that emerged with uh, climate change went viral during the COVID overreaction, and that's to speak of the science when spreading the opinions of politicized experts. And Ken McManigal reminds us science is a process, not a proclamation. So when someone's talking about the science, that's a lie. But the point here is if others can make you accept their deceptive words without hesitation then they can fool you into believing the world is as they would prefer you believe. In fact, often they're trying to make you accept the legitimacy of political government, something which he says can never be legitimate. Brainwashing doesn't have to be a complete lie. In fact, it could be a half-truth presented in an untruthful way, such as what often happens in the corporate news. In fact, that's their only gimmick. But Kent McManigal says, don't let the bullies brainwash you into giving up your individual liberty. It's never worth it. Any comfort you get from embracing the, the brainwashing is fleeting. And the pain could last for the rest of your life. I love that he is just clear, right to the point. And this is good, solid information. At least it, it, to me, it rings very, very true. You may quibble, as I do, on certain points. But overall, Ken McManigal, I think, has a really great take. All right, shifting gears. Higher education is ground zero for our ongoing culture wars. Gary and Frankel, I have the privilege of interviewing him from time to time through the Young Voices organization. He questions whether the Master's of Education degree now being offered by Harvard's Graduate School of Education is really a Master's of Education degree or a Master's degree in faux social justice. He says Harvard's Graduate School of Education will offer 190 classes during the spring 2022 semester. And a few classes are what you would expect. Instruction in quantitative analysis, classroom management, and basic pedagogy among them. But many others are not. One class is titled Native Americans in the, 17th, or in the 21st Century, rather, Native Nation Building. And it makes no attempt to relate itself to most American classrooms. 
another called Education on the Move, Recentering the Body and Movement in Teaching and Learning, asks students to embrace what it calls decolonized truths about bodies and movements, movement rather, as being essential to any kind of progressive and liberatory education. Of the first 50 traditional classes appearing in the GSE's course catalog, more than half are directly tied to some form of social justice concept. Wow. Now, the quiet, gradual intrusion of wokeness and other social justice concepts into the lectures, the literature, and the projects present in many Masters of Education programs has been well documented. But this open brazenness is a new and rapidly spreading phenomenon. Literature was the first conquest. Courses are the next one. But Gary and Frankel says, while Harvard academics prattle on about how pointing is racist, the next generation of Americans struggles to get through the school day. Fights, vandalism, sexual harassment have gone from occasional specters to frequent tormentors. Frankel says if these universities were offering, even requiring one or two classes related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, there would be no catastrophe. But he says, unfortunately, many Masters of Education programs place educator education second or even third to social justice initiatives. And it's the students who suffer for it in the end. And the problem is by no means limited to Harvard or even Ivy League universities more broadly. Smaller public universities have fallen prey to the tide of wokeness as well, though perhaps not to the same extent. Look no further than the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. Their Masters of Education in Educational Leadership consists of 10 required courses. Of these, three are centered around diversity, with one class narrowly focusing on ethics, equity, and diversity. Now, Gary says, ideological intrusion is difficult to quantify, but it can be done. A Heritage Foundation study sought to determine the research specializations rather, of 3,190 professors across 38 colleges of education, each being either a highly ranked college or a program that educates a large number of teachers. 48% of these educators, that's 70% at California State University Long Beach, were found to have a social justice research specialization. And the vast majority of professors teach courses that are in line with their background and research interests. So it's no wonder that woke classes have emerged in such force across the country. He says the physical, make that the philosophical and psychological harms associated with wokeness, as with the presence of wokeness in college classrooms in the first place, has been well established. The pandemic is most often credited with the nationwide decline in student performance, but an analysis by the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which tested students before the pandemic, found that students' test test scores have been stagnating or dropping since 2012, nearly a decade before the pandemic's effects on learning were fully understood. Now, wokeness isn't exactly ancient either. In fact, uh, Gary and Frankel talks about how his mother, who earned a teaching degree in the early 1990s, cannot recall any facet of her education about being centered around social justice. She does remember extensive pedagogical strategies that held and still hold direct relevance in elementary education. But instead of engaging in much-needed research and self-reflection to see if they were the problem, after all, education departments around the country are doubling down on their philosophies and strategies. Many in the name of equity, are doing away with testing entirely. 
Now, he says, de-wokifying university education departments is possible and it's arguably desirable, but it will not be easy. In fact, at minimum, it will take strong wills and a tangible competing vision for education and lots of patience. Unfortunately, American families can't afford to wait 20 years for meaningful reforms to meaningful reforms rather to trickle down from university education departments into the classroom. <clears throat> In other words, expansion of school choice may be the best answer for the short term. A lot of states have done this. A lot of states lack private school options. But when you have education departments not offering serious classes, grassroots efforts often can help to fill the void. I'll have a link to his article in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianheitshow.com. And we'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to thank you for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. And I hope that that's a label that you will wear with pride. It's not like, you're a wrong thinker. I'm not trying to put you down. That's a compliment. If I greet you as, welcome, fellow wrong thinker. You know, that's that's as good as an embrace. Which, I don't know, if it makes it uncomfortable, let's not make this weird. But I'm, I'm grateful that there are people willing to think outside of the narratives that are being force-fed to us on a daily basis. And I certainly don't claim to have all the answers. There's a very real chance I could be dead wrong about any number of things. But as long as we are asking relevant questions... I'm confident we're going to get to the truth. That's why this program exists, and that's why I I encourage you to support the sponsors who make it possible. And if you'd like to subscribe to get my show notes on a daily basis, just uh, go to the show notes. Actually, just go to the website, and there's a subscribe button, and I'll drop them in your email inbox every single day that I do the show. All right, moving on here, if you need a little more clarity as to how the state isn't your friend. I want to share with you a compilation of the wackiest parenting stories of 2021 by uh, Lenore Skenazy. She is the person who pioneered the concept of free-range children. And this is pretty solid evidence, at least to me, it's solid evidence of how out-of-balance government has become at every level. And why, as a parent, you and I cannot afford to let our guard down. Lenore Skenazy says, in a crazy year, some stories were crazier than others when it came to kids Parents, worry warts, scolds, and everything else besides COVID-19, which we give a blessed rest in this list. So here's, here's the first example of crazy parenting stories of 2021. Number one, why can't you be good like me? A Beaverton, Oregon man screamed at a lady for leaving her kid in the car while she ran into the grocery store for two items. Her irresponsibility was hurting his work. Here he was, minding his own business, stealing her car when he noticed the baby and had to bring him back. What a waste of time. On the upside, at least that gave the guy a chance to tell the mom what a low life she was before he sped off in her car again. (laughs) Sadly, I could see that playing out. Here's number two. We'll leave a light on in your cell. Shayna Bell of Youngstown, Ohio, was arrested for leaving her kids, ages 10 and 2, in a motel room while she worked her evening shift 
at a pizza shop. Cops tipped off to this struggling family's criminal activity, booked mom into jail on two counts of criminal child endangerment. Being in a cell would certainly help her supervise her kids. Surprise happy ending? When that story got out, GoFundMe raised $165,000 to help the Bell family. That's crazy. I've actually seen it happen, though. I've seen it happen with, with friends where, you know, what, what turned out is, you know, uh, leaving her, a mother who left her kids at the library with the older kids supervising the younger kids came back to find a police officer waiting for her. And I think she ran into the same police officer just a short time later. She ran into the store to drop a video off and came back out to the car. That time she was charged with felony child endangerment. Now, thankfully, those charges were dismissed, but that's a pretty sobering thing to see your friend's mugshot and go, what the heck? Felony child endangerment? Yeah. And I'm sure that really helps. Well, let's just throw you in prison to show you what it's like to not be present in your child's life like you should be. Let's make a situation worse. Number three, the school pickup to prison pipeline. When 10-year-old Braylon Harvey was picked up a full seven minutes late from a Chicago public school, the school reported his mom, Janae Dodson, to the Department of Child and Family Services. The principal's email to Dodson said, I am empathetic to the challenges of balancing work and family responsibilities. However, all school employees are required to follow CPS protocols. Lenore Skenazy says, you know, Dolores Umbridge couldn't have said it better. Number four, no glowing recommendations for this kid. Hazmat teams rushed to New Jersey's Haddon Township High School in January after a sophomore brought a quarter-sized piece of Fiesta ware, that's the colorful Depression-era plates, to science class. He wanted to see if the red color, once made with uranium oxide, was radioactive. His teacher considered it a learning opportunity. An administrator considered it a biohazard and evacuated the school. Even though if you search for FiestaWare Radioactive, as Lenore Skenazy did, you'll find an article on ScienceNotes.org saying there is no record of anyone ever becoming sick from manufacturing or using radioactive FiestaWare. Number five, how dare those boys play outside? Nevada doctor Daniel Hansen was at work when his sons, 8 and 10, asked their mom if they could play down their dead-end street. Mom said yes, and off they went until a neighbor called 911 to report two unsupervised children. Firefighters raced over to sheepishly escort them home. See, now the firemen apologized, adding that they would report, the, then added that they would be reporting the family to law enforcement. Dr. Hansen's mom, Assemblywoman Alexis Hansen, needed no further prodding to co-sponsor Let Grow's Reasonable Childhood Independence Bill in the Nevada State Legislature. The law ensures that parents who let their kids do unreasonable things like play outside cannot be charged with neglect unless they put the kids in obvious and likely danger. That bill passed in the Nevada House with bipartisan support, stalling in the Senate. But here's the good news. This year, this last year, Oklahoma and Texas became the second and third states to follow the lead of Utah, which passed the country's first free-range parenting law in 2018. Now one-tenth of American kids live where they are guaranteed the right to reasonable childhood independence. This coming year, Let Grow, the childhood independence-promoting nonprofit that she runs, hopes to pass similar bills in Colorado, Nebraska, and South Carolina. 
So she says, stay tuned and wish us luck. 2022 could be a much better year for free-range kids. I don't know, do you find yourself tempted ever to call CPS on somebody? It's a really tricky thing. And I've, you know, I've, I've had my own experience once upon a time, a long time ago, uh, when we were raising our kids, uh, we had a neighbor drop by unexpectedly while I was at work, and I believe while Becky was at work. Now, at this time, I had kids who were in their early teens, and I also had kids right down to the toddler stage. And apparently a neighbor stopped by and saw our toddler boy standing up in his high chair with probably food smeared all over his face. He always was kind of a messy eater, but uh, he really liked to, to do the whole let's rub mashed potatoes in my eyes thing. But she was concerned at what she saw. And, you know, I'm grateful for that concern, but what I wasn't so grateful for was the instinct was, well, I should probably call DCFS and have them come and, and uh, look into this, whether these kids are being neglected. Thankfully, she spoke to our uh, our local clergy, and our bishop pulled us into his office uh, that uh, following Sunday and said, listen, uh, something I need to make you aware of, this is a concern. Someone has expressed uh, concern that maybe there's some neglect going on here and indicated they wanted to uh, reach out to DCFS. I've asked them not to, but I wanted to make you aware of that. And, you know, on the one hand, I, I could sit there and just be angry. Oh, how dare they? But the chill that went up my spine when he said, yeah, you know, she was wanting to call DCFS, that was a real chill. Because I've been paying attention over the years and I've seen a lot of people who, you know, for one reason or another, DCFS enters their life. And look, once they have entered the scene, you don't get rid of them just by asking them to leave. If, they're, if they feel like they need to intervene, and frankly, for, for some of them, this is, this is the whole reason they exist. We are here to find a reason to intervene. They're going to be there. And they will attach themselves to you and your family and uh, will not let go until they are satisfied that you are meeting every bureaucratic requirement they can come up with. Now, I want you to understand, it was probably a mistake leaving the kids in charge. But it was also a temporary thing. And there was, it wasn't like we, we left them, you know, with a broken gasoline pipeline dumping gas into the house and nothing but books of matches to play with and keep them entertained. It was nothing that put them into obvious danger. More than anything, just a sense of bad timing. Could we have done it better? Yeah, probably. Most likely, yes. My only caution is when you get the state involved, particularly when you get Child Protective Services involved, you're opening a door that is not very easily shut. Because once the state is involved, it doesn't care about any nuance or anything like that. There are bureaucratic things that have to be, boxes that have to be ticked off and, and things that have to be checked out. And the bottom line is you will be told in no uncertain terms that your parenting and your authority in your household is subject to the approval of this bureaucrat or that bureaucrat. And I'm sorry if it sounds like, are you throwing all these child protective workers under the bus? Nope. Nope, but the system itself has a predatory side that those who've had to deal with it will readily recognize and those who haven't may be tempted to dismiss. Okay? The point is, yeah, there are people out there who abuse children and they should be stopped, but not everything constitutes abuse. And a government agency looking for abuse is going to find something to hang its hat on. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you need a loan, a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, maybe just to refinance your existing home loan, these are the folks I want you to talk to. If you are listening to me anywhere within the state of Utah, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is your best bet to get the loan you need and to get it without delay. And you know, in a really hot real estate market, that's important. You can contact Heather by calling 435-703-4522. You can stop by their office in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, this next story I'm going to share with you, I I was actually kind of hesitant to do this because it's this is a pretty heavy story. Okay, I I've I've saved uh, probably saved the, the roughest information today for last. But it should be very clear to anybody who's trying to pay attention that so much of the narrative we've been fed for the last two years is falling apart right now. James Howard Kunstler has an unflinching look at the crimes against our country, and he calls them crimes. And when you hear why, maybe you'll agree, maybe you won't. But there's a big question here about will those responsible be held accountable or will we just have to declare our nation a lawless nation? Kunstler says the year of sickening global psychosis ended with virologist and vaccine uber specialist Dr. Robert Malone truth bombing the Internet with three hours of straight talk about the U.S. Health Authority's campaign to destroy the lives of at least half a million U.S. citizens so far and leading by example to harm multiples of that number of innocent people across all of Western civilization. Podcaster Joe Rogan assisted skillfully in an interview that's finally rocking the world out of an epic consensus trance. There's a link to that interview, by the way, if you haven't had a chance to watch it yet or listen to it. It's This, this is something you really should check out. Now, Kunstler, he clarifies here, by health authorities, I don't just mean Dr. Anthony Fauci the designated national SARS-CoV-2 coordinator, or even his accomplices in the Department of Health and Human Services, like the CDC, the National Institutes of Health, NIAID, etc. But also the purblind U.S. medical establishment of actual doctors in clinical practice, researchers, hospital administrators, and pharma executives who acted with a collective stupid malevolence not seen since the crematory stuffers of the Nazi bureaucracy carried out their final solution. And his message to them is, we know what you did. You engineered and patented a gain-of-function virus at the same time you conspired with pharma companies to devise and patent pseudo-vaccines. And then you loosed both of them on the public. You didn't just fail to adequately test the vaccines cooked up by Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson, but you deliberately botched the trials and lied about it. You created rich dollar incentives for hospitals to mistreat COVID patients by failing to use known, safe, effective antivirals. You conspired with the social and news media to suppress information about those common antiviral drugs 
that would have informed many patients' decisions and saved thousands of lives. You treated late-stage patients dying of COVID-induced vascular disorder with the ineffective and toxic drug remdesivir that Dr. Fauci had developed unsuccessfully for an Ebola outbreak years before. In fact, he says nurses turned so cynical about the remdesivir protocol that they nicknamed it Run, Death is Near. You prompted government officials to lock down society, force useless masking, and now to coerce vaccination by threatening to deprive citizens of their livelihoods. So the U.S. Supreme Court will entertain arguments this coming Friday, January 7th, to enjoin against Joe Biden's mandates to coerce vaccination in companies that employ more than 100 people, excuse me, and a separate mandate forcing vaxes on staff at Medicare, Medicaid-certified providers, meaning most hospitals and doctor's offices. Now, there's a pretty good chance the court will decide against the mandates. They're expected to rule Monday, January 10th, the day that the mandates are supposed to take effect. Boy, a lot of people are going to be watching that one, too. The government's actions around the COVID-19 event look more and more to be deliberately and maliciously intended to harm lives and cause social and economic breakdown. In the last weeks of 2021, he says, federal public health officers even blocked shipments of monoclonal, monoclonal antibodies around the country, despite their proven efficacy. The CDC scheduled the use of PCR tests for, for COVID-19 to end on December 31st after declaring them unreliable in August. And James Howard Kunstler says, why the five-month lag? Well, he says the answer is to keep the uh, case numbers jacked up. That's why. Every effort is being made to extend emergency youth authorizations, use authorizations rather, for unsafe and ineffective vaccines in order to sustain shields against liability for the benefit of their manufacturers. Pfizer refuses to release in the USA its FDA-approved Comirnaty version of the EAU-protected BioNTech product for that reason. The Pentagon has lied and confabulated its use of the two Pfizer products in order to illegally force unapproved BioNTech vaccinations on enlisted men and women. Hospital directors, doctors, and their professional associations continue to to persecute colleagues who speak publicly against the vaccines. The vaccine makers refuse to disclose the exact contents of their products and were permitted to withhold data on safety trials until a half century into the future. Now, the obvious conclusion is that they don't want the public to be informed about any of this. The net effect is that the medicine, medicine in the USA has destroyed its own authority. And he asks, who can trust his doctor if you know that your doctor went along with all this epic dishonesty? James Howard Kunstler says the world is heading, or the country rather, is heading into an agonizing reality test at a scale and speed never before seen in human history. You can already assume that government has lost control of the COVID-19 story. The Omicron scare is failing miserably. Lots of cases, few deaths, mild symptoms. Government's credibility is shot. In the months ahead, we'll learn just how harmful those vaccines were, especially among American children. 
as deaths mount from damage done to people's organs and immune systems. The perfidious news media is now scrambling to adjust its own narratives, but they won't escape the record of falsehood they've sedulously laid down. They can't delete or rewrite every story in their archives, and many of these are printed out in hard copy anyway. Next, they'll try apologizing. We're sorry, but the pandemic drove us just a little nuts. But that's hardly enough. And Kunstler says they have to answer in courts of law, or else we must just declare the USA a lawless state. Now, this gets really sobering here. And and I'm sorry if this turns out, if it feels like I'm throwing a wet blanket over your whole day, that's not my goal. But this is the point we've reached. Trying to ignore it is not going to make it go away. So let's let's deal with it as we can. He says the COVID-19 crimes against our fellow citizens amount to just one piece of a package of reality tests coming our way in 2022. Do you think special counsel John Durham skulked off to drink pina coladas in oblivion after indicting a couple of errand boys, namely Denchenko and Sussman? Nope. He is a hypersonic force orbiting over a well-known cast of political criminals, all headed for prosecution. Next up will be the train wreck of the U.S. economy. Do you think the crimes around the 2020 national election are buried and forgotten? James Howard Kunstler says you're in for some harsh surprises. Things have truly flipped. You just don't realize it yet. Now, I'm going to ask you just to pause for a moment here and just think about, okay, how much of this affects me directly? And only you can answer that question. I mean, if you are a if you're a health bureaucrat, maybe it's going to affect you a lot. You may be sitting in the dock answering questions at some point. But for the rest of us, it means that uh, everything that we've been hanging on to, that, uh, that, you know, it's all, nothing's going to change any further and it's all going to get normalized again and we're all going to go back to normal. I don't think that's the case. I think the damage has been done and the people who are trying so desperately to hang on to power in the first place are likely to resort to, well, whatever it takes. I mean, let's try not to let our imaginations run away with us, but if they were willing to let people be harmed, whether it be physically, mentally, economically, in order to uh, accrue more power, what do you think they would do to keep from having that power stripped away from them? I think the answer is almost anything. This is The Brian Hyde Show.